Scott, sometimes when I can't sleep and I'm just laying there in my Path Projects gear. <laughs> yeah. And I'm scrolling. You're sleeping in your Path Projects gear? And I'm scrolling through the interwebs. I came across an article in Gear Junkie. Gear Junkie, yeah. They they just rated their top shorts of the year, running shorts of the year, and guess which was number one? Path Projects. The Sykes PX 5-inch. That's the 5-inch inseam, it, It's not like it didn't have competition. They had all the big names right underneath them. Oh, yeah. And so a couple of the, the, the two reasons why they ranked it number number one in their in their pick was the, the size of the pockets and where the pockets are placed. They're not bouncing stuff around. You can put your big cell phone in there. And it doesn't bounce. You don't even feel it back there, Scott. You have to reach back and wonder if it's still there. Yeah, if it I bounced out. <laughs> I don't know how it does that, but it works. It's magic. Okay. And the other thing was is just the fabric, how soft the fabric feels against your skin. The the elastic band is not made out of silicone. It's big and wide, so it doesn't bunch up. I don't know if you ever used shorts where after a long run, you had a little chafage, right, where there where the elastic band was. You don't get that with these. You don't get a lot of stuff with those, Scott. You don't get chafing between the thighs. You don't get it on the waistband. You get a nice, clean ride. Go to pathprojects.com and check out their gear. you got to order some. Do your experiment of one with Path Projects. Scott, you've heard of the biking program, Biking Peloton, where you get on there, you take a class. You're, it's like you're with a whole room full of other cyclists, and you're going through a program. Now we talk about Peloton Tread. It's a full-body workout. New York Times said it's like having a personal trainer come to your house whenever you'd like. And we saw one in action. You get on this tread, and you select which class you want, which, which uh, professional instructor you want to follow, and you go through their entire workout with them. Class is anywhere from 10 to 60 minutes long. Has a very large screen, 32-inch screen, where you can, like you say, watch an instructor walk you through a full-body workout. What I thought was cool is it looked like they also had some plans. If you want to run a 5K, if you want to take a training programs, yes. Take some training programs, and then they make him do what we need to do, Scott, which is stretching afterwards and maybe a little strength training. It seems like we're a little lopsided on just running. Well, this gives you a well-rounded workout. Discover the immersive and challenging total body workout by going to one, that's O-N-E, peloton.com, and use the code TRN. Remember that commercial, you got chocolate in my peanut butter? Do you remember that, Scott? (laughs) I do. Lisa's peanut butter cup. Now we have trail running and relay racing combined. The Ragnar Trail Racing Series. There are 19 locations across North America that combine trail running and friends. Great place, and you can get a discount if you go to our partners page. Click on the Ragnar link. You can get $80 off your team registration. But hold the press, Scott, because we have a Trail Runner Nation team, and that means you can have a free entry. Free! You and your friends. All you have to do is find somebody to take a picture with. A good one. (laughs) An eye-dropping picture, as we like to call it. It could be a pet. (laughs) <laughs> well, no, not maybe not a pet. Somebody that could carry a bib. And then come up with just a, a a great name and put it into the contest. Hashtag Ragnar TRN. If you're selected, you can have a free entry. You have till April 13th to get your entry in. Creativity is a plus. A must. Dr. Romanoff, I, you're, you're probably very uh, experienced at professional interviews. This is not one of them. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we, Don't put yourself down. <laughs> we, 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 we are very uh, uh, casual. That's a good word. Ashley, were you expecting a professional podcast? No, I wasn't. Apparently not. Sorry, guys. Yeah. And it was a miserable, miserable day. Okay, fantastic. Let's do this thing. Are we ready? Welcome to another attrition. <laughs> no, you don't even know how to say it. No, I don't. We're going to start again. <laughs> this is going to be a long podcast, Alec. It's going to be about uh, four hours to record and four minutes worth of uh, content. Welcome to another edition of Trail Runner Nation. My name is Don Freeman. And I'm Scott War, and we're going to talk about endurance. <laughs> well, we have about for about seven yeah, for, years, Scott. Yeah, for about 422 episodes, we've talked about endurance. But today we're going to talk about endurance. We did a series of podcasts with uh, Magda, uh, Magda Bollet and Andy Jones-Wilkins on Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And at, at the end of the third one, we're thinking, you know what we should do? 
Let's go to the horse's mouth. Wait, and we let's thought, get let's get Alex on the podcast. He would never come on. He would never ever. Well, we we caught him at a weak moment. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, hallucinating. We have Alex Hutchinson. Uh, thank you for joining us, Alex. Thanks for uh, you're, you're in Toronto. Is that correct? I'm in Toronto, and thanks so much for having me on. It's it's a pleasure to be here as the as the horse's mouth. It's been, there are worse parts of a horse to be. So. <laughs> you notice we picked the right end, right? Um, yes, exactly. So Alex is well qualified. If you haven't gotten this book, you need to go get it. You can get it everywhere, whether it's at the bookstore, in the library, at Amazon. You need to have your own copy, though. So go get it. If you don't know about Alex, he is an award-winning author. So he writes for Outside Magazine. He has three books, which, by the way, we'll list in the in the show, uh, notes. show notes because there's the other two books that he's written are very curious. Also, we're going over those next, Scott. <laughs> after we're done with Endure, then we 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 pile into the next one. Um, but beyond that, he has a PhD in physics. Is a physicist, and he's a a competitive athlete. He ran for the Canadian team, fifteen hundred meter for the Canadian team was a uh, two-time finalist in the Olympic trials for Canada. Mm-hmm. So he's he knows a little bit about running, too. Welcome so, to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. So my first question, and this is kind of an obvious question, because the title is titled Endure. What, after writing and researching, what is your definition of endurance? Nice. <laughs> yeah, that, you think I would, I would have thought about that question before. <laughs> um this is a tricky one because I, when I started out writing the book, I had a very narrow conception of endurance. It's like endurance was how fast can you run this race basically in, in one form or another. And when I started talking to scientists about it, it I realized it's a little trickier. And there's, there's a definition that I use in the book, which is a little bit of a hand-waving definition, but which comes from the scientific literature, which is that endurance is the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. Mm. And I kind of cheated with that definition because that's actually the definition they use for the sense of effort. But to me, it sums up what endurance is about. And, and as I've sort of worked with that, I realized is, you know, this is a lot broader than running or even than, in, than endurance sports more generally, that there's a lot of you know, aspects of life or or situations you encounter where you have to struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. And I think all of those situations, what they have in common is that they require endurance. So talk to us a little bit about, I mean, you, you have a unique perspective as a physicist, as a scientist, and as an athlete, a competitive athlete. Talk to us a little bit about how you approach this book from both, with both hats on. How, how did it start? Did it start as, I want to write a book about endurance because I, I like to run and I go out and run every day, or was it f- from a scientific point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think both both hats were important for sure. Uh, I, I, so I, was a, I was an athlete first before I started thinking about the science of endurance. And when I started, the questions that I asked, the when I started writing about, so I, not to go into a long circuitous story, but you know, I, as you said, I started out as a physicist, and I was almost thirty before I started out in journalism. And then I started out—I was a newspaper reporter writing about you know car accidents and dog fashion shows mm-hmm. and stuff. And then I was like, <laughs> I need to write about the stuff I care about. So I started to write about endurance, and because I had a science background, I figured the science of endurance is the right place to start. But the questions I, I was asking about the science of endurance came straight from my experiences as a runner, and more specifically, I, I had this—I had and I'm sure I'm not the only only one, the, the sort of feeling that there was not a straightforward relationship between how fit I was, between you know what my VO2 max was, between how fit I was at any given point and how I would perform in a given race. That It, it just struck me that you could, I mean, one scientist I talked to called it the good day, bad day problem. Why why is it that you can feel like you're at a certain level of fitness, you feel good, you go out and want to run a race and you have one result. And then you know a month later, you feel exactly the same and you run 20% better or 20% worse or, or, or whatever the case may be. And, and so it just seemed like such a – endurance just seems like such a black box in the sense of I don't know what determines on any given day when I'm pushing my limits how close I'm, you know, I'm going to get or, or what I'm going to be able to achieve. And so that I think was because of you know, whatever 10, 20, 30 years of, of running experience – that's what informed the questions I asked. I didn't want to know, like, tell me more about the mitochondria. I wanted to understand, know really what 
what defines our limits, even if we have to get into some areas that are harder to measure and harder to, to sort of test in the lab? You know, tell us a little bit about, I, 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 I think it was either a podcast or a YouTube video or something. Tell us about the story when you were, I think, uh, third year in university where you had a breakout race and how that changed. Tell, tell us that story because I think that yeah, kind of talks yeah. about the limits of, of endurance. For sure. This is a story that, it's, it's funny, like it was a significant moment in my life for sure when it happened. But even more so, it was like while I was writing this book, and I was trying to understand why am I why am I so interested in this? Why am I spending ten years on this book or whatever? And I was sort of trying to trace back where it started, and I realized that it was this race that started it. So basically, the the, the sort of semi semi short semi long version of the story is, uh, I was a miler. I wanted to break four minutes for fifteen hundred meters, um, which is like a four seventeen mile, let's say. So the you know as I say that the sort of poor man's four minute mile barrier. <laughs> I was I was very close to it in high school. Very soon after I started running, I ran 402, and figured it would be straightforward to to break through. But I got I hit a plateau for about four years. So by the time I was in third year university, I was a 401 guy, having run 401 or 402 for four straight years. And uh, I ended up running a race where I I went out hard, and it was an indoor race, so you get splits every 200 meters. And the first the first split I got was 27 seconds, which is uh, you know. You don't have to do the math. You know, the 27 seconds for 200 is way too fast for a for a four minute 1500. And uh, it was one of those moments where you know the 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 conscious and rational part of my brain was like, "Holy crap, you have you have screwed <laughs> up big time here." But I was actually feeling pretty good, all things considered. And I came to the second lap, and the split was 57, and I was like, "Holy mackerel, something's going on here." And after the third lap, got another good split, and was just like, "Don't know what's happening, but don't waste it." put your head down, you know, go for it. And so the, the, you know, the end of the story is I ran 352.4 that day, which was a nine second personal best after the, you know, four years of, of absolute plateau. And the, the postscript is, you know, talking to my, one of my teammates afterwards who'd taken my splits and, you know, saying, wow, you know, can you believe how fast I went out? And he's like, your first lap was like 30 or 31. And what had happened is the, the, the timekeeper was giving me the wrong splits. I, he must, oh. he probably missed missed the uh, start with it by three or four seconds with his watch. And so I had this sense that I was running this race for the ages, that I was having the greatest day of my life. And, and, and you know, my all my math, you know, I knew how to run 32-second splits. By the time I got to 600 meters, I, I had no idea what I was running because these splits were so far out of the out of my experience or expectation. And that sort of unshackled me. And, I, and so I had this huge breakthrough. And... After that, I never had trouble breaking four minutes again, and I actually got faster in my race. I ran 3:49 in the race after that, and 3:44 in the race after that. So, so there, there's, you know, there's a lot of complicated things going on there. But the, the bottom line, as you said, is this was kind of I could never think about limits in the same way after that. I could never finish a race and say, that's all that's there in my body, because I always, you know, I, for four years I'd been finishing races and slumping to the ground and saying, well, that's as fast as I can go. And then one day I was I was a lot faster. So I think that's that's the kind of origin story, when I think about it, that got me curious about these topics. You know, that's that's a great story, and and I like your reference. You know, the fifteen hundred meter is the poor man's mile. <laughs> um, Scott and I run the slow man's mile, which is twenty yards all out, and then we do so we take out our calculators and do a little math. So we we do. And you go that. sub four, I'm sure. Oh, we, oh yeah, it's it, usually falling down a hill too. There's a, there's a little bit of an incline. <laughs> if we need to, we we throw some variables that favor us. Hey, um, I've got a question for you. As it comes to as you've done some of this research, do you think the limitations are for man and his ability to run and have endurances more above the neck or below the neck? Where does that lie? Yeah, I, you know, and I, I feel I feel absolutely guilty giving you the cop-out answer, but uh, mm. absolutely both. But in, in you know, no questions asked. There's 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 no like because I wrote this book, which puts a lot of emphasis on the role of the brain in dictating our limits. Um, I, I, you know, people sometimes assume that I'm all about you, you believe whatever you believe you can achieve. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I believe that I cannot achieve, you know, no matter it, you know, I'm not going to make the NBA at this point in my life, mm -hmm. at least. And uh, I'm not going to run a two minute mile. Like we are constrained. And so there's some obvious ones, like I'm saying joking ones, but there's also some more concrete ones, like the difference between me and, you know, Kenanisa Bakila or something is not just belief. So, 
the physical part is absolutely crucial. Uh, and, and the difference between me and the people at the Olympics is, I would say, is predominantly physical. The, the, the difference between them. So, so in that, in that comparison, it's below the neck that matters more. But when you start comparing the people at the Olympics who all have the physical tools, then I think you see the mental part starting to emerge. Why does someone like, why did someone like Haley Gabriel Selassie beat Paul Turgat by a fraction of a second in race after race over the course of 10 years? It's not that he was always 0.0000001% physically better than him. He, he kind of owned him mentally. And similarly, when you start to talking about your personal limits, so so what has meaning to me is how how fast can I go on a given day? Well, sure, I'm a little fitter or a little less fit from one week to another, one month to another, one year to another. But there's not necessarily huge differences. So a lot of the bigger progress over the course of the season for me is did I did I run well? Did I push myself? And and so then we're looking back at the above the neck kind of comparisons. So I think it it, it depending on whether you're comparing, you know. Uh, race horses with cart horses like me or or similar people, you get a different balance of the 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 physical versus the mental. And and you know, it just occurred to me as you were saying that and I jumped in front of Scott on his excellent question coming up, <laughs> is that part of that above the neck might be just a discipline to eat right, to sleep right, to to get out there and train when you're feeling a little bit like not training. There's there's a mental side, not just during the race, but the discipline to have the 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 discipline to get out there and do it. So there's more inside yeah. the head. So for sure, the, the and, and that makes it even harder to disentangle the two because your you you know your mental strength enhances your physical physical strength, and it goes the other way around too. Like, why are some people really mentally strong? Because every time they go and race someone, they win. Like yeah. they're, they're 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 incredibly talented and incredibly strong. It's it's a lot easier to be very confident in your abilities when you crush everything in your path. You know, when I think of what you just described, I kind of distill things in my life to uh, movies of yeah. my life. Yeah. And I think of, <laughs> of Rocky Four, where you have Ivan Drago, who is the science-based machine. I mean, you see him training, and they have him dialed in. Of course, there was a little bit of performance enhancement there with a little bit of needle. Um, but then you also have Rocky, who is also in really, really good shape, but he has the mental capacity to beat Yvonne. And, and so I, I kind of think of that as, as we get into this. And I think that you bring up in the book very, a very important point. You know, for, for a long time, scientists have been looking at the body as a machine. What is the VO2 max? What's the lactate threshold? Uh, what's the crossover point? You know, how many... How many uh, um, calories can your glyc can you store in your glycogen stores and stuff like that? And I think just recently, um, maybe with the advent of Tim Noakes and his central governor theory or whatever, people are looking at that there's there's different research that is being done that shows that the mind actually plays a very very key role in this. And that's what I love about this book is you dive into. Not only some very good stories, but some good research that 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 uh, uncovers that. What was what was probably one of your? Oh, go ahead before I ask the next. I, I was just going to say yeah, that so this is definitely the 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 narrative that I presented in the book that you know the 20th century was understanding the body as a machine, and now we're in the 21st century and understanding the mind's role. I, I I just it's probably worth noting that one of the areas of pushback I I saw, I've gotten from some scientists that are like you know people who've been around for a long time like. Come on, we're, we weren't stupid in 1980. It's not like no, <laughs> people didn't know that anyone had a brain. So people have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And and even some of the studies I talk about in the book, like there's there was a famous study in the early 60s where they're having people lift or exert max, maximal muscle, muscle contractions, and then they have a researcher sneaking up behind one of the, the subjects and firing a, a starter's pistol in their ear just to scare the crap out of them to show that, hey, they get stronger when they're scared. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I don't want to... Uh, you know, throw all of the 20th century scientists under the bus as if they had no idea that the brain was involved. But it, this, this stuff is hard to study. And so I think it is fair to say that in the last 10 or 15 years, there have been huge strides in saying, okay, you know, let, let's not just sort of say, yes, we know the brain is involved. Let's let's take it into the lab and let's try and test it out and, and understand it. I, I, I had the quote in my notes and then somehow in the ether, my notes went away. But we're talking about a study where where they, they flashed quick 
images of sad faces versus happy ah. faces. You're shaking your head, good, Alex. You'll 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 save me here. And then they timed these cyclists to see how their performance changed, and it was like 12% improvement on those with happy faces. There's a lot to understand and and to figure out with this. How, what's the mind able to do? Yeah, that's one of my. That's like you know, one of my prime examples of studies that, that something that just blew me away because there's one thing, you know, and another thing we should say is sports psychology has been around for a long time too, right? Mm -hmm. Like since, at least since the seventies. And so, you know, every time I'd speak to sports psychologists, they're like, uh, duh, you know, we've been telling you this for, for 20 years. And, and my response is kind of like, yeah, you've been telling me this, but I had no reason to believe you. Like it's, 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 you know, like what you said made sense, but it's, it's a question of trying to, to, uh, you know, it's easy to say something that makes sense. It's harder to show that it's true. And I'm a skeptical guy. I want to know what the evidence is. So, so circling back to this study where they, so they flash these smiling faces or frowning faces, pictures of them on the wall for 16 milliseconds at a time. So you couldn't even, you, you weren't even, you didn't even know that there were faces there. You were only perceiving them unconsciously. And so that's the kind of intervention that to me, where there's, you don't even know what's happening. So it's, you know, if, if I, if I give you a motivational speech, improve your performance, but it's hard to know what's improving it. Maybe you just know you're supposed to go faster or whatever. But if you don't even know someone is flashing those pictures on the wall and you still go faster, that shows there's something really deep going on and, and that, that that goes beyond just trying harder, that it's affecting how you perceive effort. Yeah, it, it makes me kind of think about when they're spectators at big races, when they're all on the sidelines clapping for you, or when you come into a, in a mm -hmm. long trail run, when you're out there by yourself amongst the, the leaves and the sticks, and no one's there to cheer you on. You, sometimes it's a little little tougher to to move along, but as soon as you come into an aid station, people are clapping and encouraging you. You feel a little lighter. You feel about 10 miles better than, <laughs> than when you were just coming out of the uh, end of the aid station. I really think that when people are around, there's a lot to that. And we even group as runners. You know, we've, Scott and I have the opportunity to, to announce uh, a number of finishes at these ultra runs, and people come in in groups. They, yeah. they bind in the communities, and they find strength with one another, and all of a sudden there's nobody, and then you have five people all coming through together, and they fast become friends out there and, and grow relationships that can extend years beyond. It's, uh, it, it's, it's fun to to be stripped down when you're out there and then find somebody else to link arms with. And, and interestingly enough, I believe they're not bringing each other down. Oh. They're pushing each other up. Oh, sure. I think that they're they're improving each other's performance in those small groups than rather than the other way around. Unless, uh, we've got to remember Alex is here, but, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> it, it, unless you get around like a negative guy, right? Yeah. You, you can't run fast enough away from the, from the permanent frowning face guy that you're with, because that will really suck the life out of you like a vampire. Oh, I've got a great story on uh, along those lines. So yeah. in, in the book, I, I, I talk about uh, motivational self-talk and the idea that, so this is one of those old school sports psych interventions that now there's some really good data on showing that it works. So, uh, and this is the idea instead, you know, you train yourself so that in Instead of saying, man, this sucks, I want to go home, you're, you're telling yourself, you could do this, you know, push through this. You're, and, and there's some really surprising studies showing that it enhances your performance a lot. Anyway, I was giving a talk at a, a, a Solomon store uh, in the last year, and I was talking about this research. And after the talk, someone came up to me and he was like, yeah, I really liked what you were saying about self-talk. Um, I was the, the lead author of that study. I was like, oh boy, here we go. Did, yeah. I, did I get this wrong? Yeah. He's like, no, 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 it was great. It was great. I just thought you might like the story. So he was like, okay, you know what? There were 10 people in that study and nine of them got better with motivational self-talk and one of them just didn't. He, we couldn't figure out why he just, you know, that the self-talk training did not help his performance. And he, these were with cyclists and they were serious, competitive, like mostly cross-country cyclists uh, or mountain bikes, mountain bikers. And, uh, but he heard from this guy again, like six months later, he got an email from him saying, "Hey, I finally figured out this this self talk thing. You know, I you know how during the during the study, I just couldn't get the negative self talk out out of my head. It was you know, no matter what how I trained, I still was thinking all these negative thoughts. Like, oh, every time someone would come up on me, I'd think this guy's gonna pass me. I'm terrible. My training's no good. And I thought, well, if this is supposed to be so bad and drag down your performance, I should just start saying it out loud and shouting it to the other guys. So he said, in races now, he'll be biking along and and someone will come up." 
and 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 he'll just start verbalizing his negative self talk as a weapon. <laughs> so he'll say, "Oh, you look terrible. That's oh, there's no way you're gonna sustain that pace to the finish. Are you sure you can go do like that?" And he said, "It works like a charm. They drop back. They just can't handle the negative self talk." Yeah. So, the, the positive self talk is good, but the negative self talk may be the even more powerful weapon. You could pull up behind the competitor and say, "Man, is your knee okay? Because I see you're really <laughs> favoring that side." <laughs> Get in their head. Did you, you see him that, eat That's something? great that you're out here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah good, good job. Are you doing the whole race? <laughs> Is this a relay for you? <laughs> or or, or, or you, you see that he had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich off the aid station table, and then you make up a story about how your stomach went south after you <laughs> ate that at the last one. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like your style there, Alex. That's good. This could be the new way to go. Yeah. Hey, Alex, as, as a uh, from a runner's perspective, as you were doing this research and writing the book, what what are one or two of the things that you pulled away from the the research that has helped you become a better runner? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the first thing I should say is that, uh, it you know, pound for pound, if you put me on the start line, I'm probably a worse runner than I was two years ago. But that maybe that's just father time uh, c- catching <laughs> up with me. Um, and the other caveat is is you know thinking about these things and knowing about these things doesn't doesn't magically help you. And so I would say I'm better at analyzing and seeing what I'm doing wrong than about implementing the things I should do right. But some of the things that I've so the things that I think have been so the, the single thing that I think is most uh, sort of actionable in the in what I've talked about is is what I what we were just saying is motivational self talk. And I haven't done sort of formal training in that, but I'm much much more aware now of when I'm starting to, to, uh, sort of beat myself down with negative talk, which is, uh, which is common, right? Like we all go through this and it's not, it's not that you should expect to be able to think nothing but happy thoughts during a race. Uh, and you know, I, I was, I had a chance to hang out with, uh, Rob Crowder at an event mm. a couple of weeks ago and he was making this point. It's like, and you know, maybe Rob is, uh, more harder on himself than most people, but, uh, you have to be ready for some negative thoughts and you have to be willing to accept some pain and some discomfort, you know, especially in a, in a very long race. But you also have to recognize when you're just being needlessly negative about your, to yourself. And, and so I've, I've found that I, I can start to recognize when I'm sort of spiraling into a, this is stupid. I don't want to do this. Why am I doing this? And, and I can, and I can, I can reason myself out of that a little bit to say, well, Alex, you made the choice to be here and you know, like, Deep down, you're going to be so happy that you you came came to this race, and and so, yeah, it's uncomfortable now. Don't stress about it, and and can talk myself out of those things. And the other thing is the, the number two thing is is facial expression, and you know this is a message that I've, I'm sure I've oversimplified, uh, you know, beyond recognition. But uh, there, there's been interesting work about. That you know, even there's been some studies showing that when you smile, you're you're more efficient. You're like two percent more efficient than than when you frown, mm-hmm. and and there's you know sort of examples of people like Elliot Kipchoge, uh, deliberately smiling during marathons and things like that. So I think that's a, that's a sort of cute and easily oversimplified message. And I'm not much of a smiler myself, to be honest. But I have I've totally noticed that when I'm running hard. I could, if I stop and think, what is my facial expression right now? I'll think, I'll realize, holy mackerel, I've got that sort of grimace of absolute agony as if someone is skinning me alive. And then I'll think, <laughs> is holding my face in this contorted po- posture, is it helping me run fast? It's, it's totally irrelevant to my running. So I'll say, why don't I just relax my face? I'll, I'll relax my face. And then immediately be like, wow, I feel a lot more relaxed now that I'm not like, you know, spreading my face as if I'm in a 5,000 mile an hour wind. So, so that's one of those things that even if I'm not smiling, I'm more aware of my facial expression and how that can sort of bleed into my perception of how hard I'm, I'm working. It might explain the famous Lance glare or stare when he's going past someone, he gives them a negative face. So they, their performance decreases enough for him to pull away. Yeah. And no, yeah, nobody ever gets the pictures of him when he's on his own, and he's actually just singing a nice song to himself and smiling. Happy Lance, we uh, we, we we never saw that. Do you think that that self talk is a weapon of, for this central governor system? The theory of the brain protecting the body from from you know going from killing itself. Actually, that that self talk is just uh, one of the tools that's used to to help protect us. Yeah, you know, so. Not to get too too deep in the weeds here, but so this the central government theory was, posed, was proposed in the 90s, and yeah, the, the fundamental idea is that we're 
your brain is looking out for your best interest and just protecting you from pushing too hard. As time has evolved, that that theory has 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 changed a little bit, and there have been other theories. And so, I think that what most scientists would say now, even if and and they may have different basic views, but in general, they've moved away from the idea that your central governor theory or your central governor is trying to protect you from you know having a heart attack or or you know pushing to the point where you're brain can't get oxygen and moved more towards it's sort of an, a more evolutionary thing that we have this behavior that, that where we find it very very hard to push to our true physical limits probably because you know thousands and thousands of years ago when you think of foraging and hunting behavior you had to always balance how much energy do i spend versus how much energy am i going to gain and and to the point of like how long do i keep chasing this stupid antelope uh, and how long, how far am I going to be from the campfire? And if I keep going to like keel over, uh, am I am I ever going to make it back to the campfire? So, I, th- this the idea that it's just it's, it's sort of an immediate circuit breaker is maybe, uh, and, and I should emphasize nobody really knows the answer. This is an area of ongoing debate. But I think we've moved away from the idea of the sort of circuit breaker and, and more towards this. Just like it turns out that it's a good thing for humans in general to find it really, really, really unpleasant. As they get close to their their limits, so self talk is is a way, and and the way it might is probably regulated is really the master switch is is your perception of effort, how hard it feels. So that's the you know forget about well don't forget about but independent of you know your heart rate, your lactate levels, your your uh, you know core temperature, your breathing rate, all these things, all these things are interesting, but none of them is the master switch. All of those feed into your general sense of how crappy do I feel right now. And 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 when that when that feeling that subjective feeling hits ten out of ten or whatever, that's when you can't keep going, and that's what you can manipulate with self-talk because self-talk doesn't change your heart rate or your lactate levels or anything, but if you're convincing yourself that hey it's a sunny day it's a beautiful day and everything's good in the world you're maybe a little more likely to say yeah I feel like a you know an eight out of ten instead of an eight point five out of ten you just give yourself a little bit you're you're changing your perception of how hard or how bad all those physiological alarm bells are. You know, one of the things that I loved uh, in the book was the chapter that talked about pain and suffering. And there was a study, and and forgive me, I don't have it off the top of my head, where they put, I think there were cyclists that put uh, blood pressure cuffs on their on their arms, and they had to squeeze, you know, flex and, and, and contract their fist until they couldn't anymore because of the pain. And the the results that came from that study you mind talking about a little bit about that that was amazing to me yeah the the pain research is really fascinating and it's also sort of validating for for endurance athletes who who uh, we, we of course like to hear that all the voluntary suffering we do has has some sort of benefit uh, <laughs> in, in the long run uh, and uh, you know and and there is so the, the the big picture in this pain research is that um, no matter what sort of pain test you use and there's lots of different forms of torture um endurance athletes feel pain the same as everyone else so it's not like we've dulled our ability to detect pain but we're more willing to to keep enduring it for longer so our pain sensitivity is the same but our pain tolerance our willingness to suffer goes on for longer so one of the studies and i think the one you're referring to uh basically uh it, it it tried different forms of training so Rel- so relatively moderate training that didn't that d- didn't inflict a lot of pain, and versus relatively intense training. In this case, you know, for these cyclists, the the, the best way to inflict pain was intense intervals. And what they found was that at the end of the training period, and they and they carefully balanced the training so that they both improved their physical fitness by the same amount. So they both had exactly the same increase in VO2 max. But the group that suffered in training, the group that felt pain, dramatically increased their uh, their ability to tolerate these these uh, this blood pressure cuff uh, punishment more than the other groups. So the pain of training translated into the generalized ability to tolerate other forms of training, and it corresponded to improvement in their a greater improvement in their performance. So there's this idea that yes, we're training our bodies, but suffering or learning to tolerate discomfort, developing your psychological coping strategies ends up paying off both for performance and, and in other parts of life. It really speaks to how important it is then to enter some of these levels of discomfort during your training sessions. And if you always just 
stay away from that pain zone uh, during your training session during the race you haven't you haven't developed the skills to cope with it and it can be problematic for you and so visiting that before race day sounds like a good plan yeah, and you know, and in this particular study, the pain they used was in, interval training. But uh, there's obviously many different forms of training, uncomfortable training. Whether it's, you know, if you're if you're doing ultras, doing a double long run or something. So, getting some taste of the precise form of pain that you're going to experience in the race, I, I think is is a, is a is a pretty good idea. Along the same lines, there was a a study, I believe, of of people at the beginning of the season versus the end of the right, season right. That's putting their where you yep. putting their hands in ice right and it's pretty God. obvious that you weren't a ghost you didn't have a, a ghost writer here you know your studies alex <laughs> <laughs> yeah so th- I, and this is this is actually a crucial point so there was a study with uh with it was elite scottish swimmers and they they tested their pain tolerance uh early season and then they test their pain tolerance right, you know, when they're at their peak fitness, right before their their championship meet, and then in the off season, and and they had they compared elite swimmers to just sort of recreational swimmers, and the key thing is that okay, first of all, yes, the elite swimmers were more able to tolerate this discomfort than the uh, the, the the recreational swimmers, so they built up their pain tolerance, but. Just because they'd been pain- training for 10 years didn't mean that they had mastered pain tolerance and that they didn't have anything more to learn. Instead, their pain tolerance went up as the season went on, and so they got they had their highest pain tolerance when they were the most fit. And, and this is a pain tolerance that's totally unrelated to fitness. It's a, Again, it's a, it's a separate pain test. And then it went to its lowest levels in the off-season. So it's, unfortunately, it means that it's a sort of Sisyphean task where um, you know, being able to tolerate pain is something you have to rebuild before every race and, and before every season, you don't you don't just learn it once and then say, okay, I've mastered that. Hmm. That's good. Why why do some people enjoy being uncomfortable or being in pain? <laughs> Was there any research on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I I was at a conference once where. Uh, one of the researchers, a guy named Dominic Mickelred, I think it was, who studies pacing. Anyway, he he made the point that, in or the hypothesis, he said, if I think if you were able, if you were to study elite endurance athletes, you'd find that a lot of them have what, a bit of what he calls benign masochism. That if you know, if you dig deep down, that they kind of secretly enjoy suffering mm-hmm. a little bit, and and you know, not to the point where they're you know holding their fingers in 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 a fire or anything like that, but that they. They enjoy it, and and I don't think there's any. I don't. I don't think there's any. To my knowledge, there's not any research on, sort of, doing these sort of psychological tests and seeing if it predicts who be, who will become an, you know, a good endurance athlete. But but yeah, it's it's one of those things where, ten years ago, when I when I when I was first starting to write about health and fitness and endurance and things like that, I I had this sort of feeling that, look, I you know, I know how running makes me feel, and if I could just if, if if we could just convince everyone to get out for a few runs, they would feel the same way and they would get the, the get the same joy. And I think there's some truth to that. That it, once you get people over the hump of that, that initial like it's hard to run with if you if you haven't run since phys ed class ten years ago or twenty years ago or forty years ago, whatever. Most people will, will find running is more enjoyable, but not not everyone experiences it the same. And I think I've I've become a little bit more cautious about assuming that everyone will feel things the same way that I will and that everyone will enjoy running the same way I do. I think a lot of people, most people will enjoy it more than they think they will. And some people will find that they love it and, and, and make it a part of their lives, but not everyone experiences this things the same way. I have a, I have a, a four-year-old daughter, in fact, who every time I try and tell her that she, she's really going to love a food, a new food that she hasn't tried. she and I'll say, no, no, it's, it's sweet. Trust me, you're going to love it you're not going to be able to understand why you didn't like apples in a few years. And she'll be like, daddy, your body is not the same as mine and you can't feel the same things that I feel. Ooh, and it's like, teaching. yeah, she has a point. But <laughs> yeah. I, I think she must've written that down from somewhere. I, I'll find out who taught that to her. <laughs> She's get, reading your book. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I think there's some truth to that. I think, I think, I think the enjoyment of pain, um, is, is, must have some sort of role in when what draws some, some of us into sort of following this the thing for a lifetime anthropologically you've got to look back and and if everybody enjoyed running as much as as we do no one would be left at the camp they'd all leave 
at the beginning of the day, and then they would be abandoned. Then it would be taken no one, over. No one would keep the fire going. We right? need some homebodies. We need some people to keep the fire, keep the fuel on the fire. That's what it's about. You know, as you're talking about this, I remember the famous quote by um, Steve Prefontaine that says, uh, "Oh, there's only one pace, and that is suicide pace. And oh. to, and today is a good day to die." Oh, I love it. Yeah, too good. <laughs> I think he enjoyed to suffer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Zatopek, too, you know, the, I think there's that famous moment where he was running the marathon at the Olympics for the first time, and it was a really hot day, and he looked around, and it's something, I think it's the title of those, one of the biographies, like, Today We Die a Little, Gentlemen, or something like that. Uh, it's yeah. like, and you, you know he said it with a smile on his face. You know, it, on the intro, Scott introduced you, you have a PhD and a physicist, and, and, and I gave Scott a, a look, because I hadn't read that intro. I just assumed physiologist, uh, you know, in physiology, writing the book that you've written, I would think that would be your area of specialty. And what perspective has a physicist brought to you writing in a book that's wide open in physiology? Well, I, I'm glad you made that mistake because I've been trying to slide under the radar for the last 10 years, hoping people would assume I knew physiology rather than <laughs> physics. <laughs> well, you, you do <laughs> so know I get it. more credibility. <laughs> no, I think it would be um, harder to, yeah, to you, become a physicist. Uh, I've taken <laughs> some of those courses. I do know that is not an easy task. So what did some of those exercises and thought process bring to this, tab to this table? Yeah, it's, it's so I, I do think there's some... some uh, my my approach to the questions of of running and of sports science are informed by my sort of my my uh, by being a physicist. Now the question is: Is it are, do, does studying physics make make you see the world a certain way? Mm. See see the world in a certain way, or do the people who see the world in a certain way are they more likely to end up in uh, a field like physics? So I, I guess what I mean by that is: Look, I'm a I'm a skeptical guy. I'm a show me the evidence guy. I'm also a very uh, sort of step-by-step -step rational thinker. I, you know, I, I, I enjoy trying to understand complex systems and break them down into their constituent parts and understand what is the piece that matters here? What is the, the gear that turns all the other gears? Uh, and I think that's, that's been helpful for me as a, as a science journalist because science journalism really involves taking very complex topics and you, you know, it's it's easy to write a, a five thousand word piece about a new scientific paper. You just basically cut and paste the whole paper. It's hard to write a five hundred word piece about that paper because you have to leave. Because the hard part is figuring out all the things you can leave out without totally distorting the meaning and figuring out what the the, the crucial gear is. Now, how much of that is just that's kind of the way I'm wired, and how much of that is because I spent ten years as a physicist? I, I I'm, I'm not really sure, but I I do know that having that experience as a physicist it's not like i don't i don't go to like career days and say if you want to be a journalist spend 10 years studying physics it's not the <laughs> most efficient way to get there but it 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 helped sort of demystify science for me and it made me totally comfortable or not or at least relatively comfortable talking to scientists and saying uh i i, I you know like can you explain your research to me and then saying, okay, I didn't understand anything you said. Can you explain it again? I don't, I don't feel too insecure about that because I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable talking to scientists and realizing that, you know, in physics, what you find out very quickly is that, uh, you know, the farther you go, the fewer people who there are who, who understand what's going on. And so it's, it's fine to say, I have no idea what you're talking about in physics because uh, that's, you know, in any physics seminar, there you know ninety percent of the room is like, well, "What is this guy talking about?" So <laughs> you, you get comfortable with with confessing your ignorance. <laughs> you know that's one of the things that I always speak to when I recommend this book, and and we do recommend it so highly. It's such a great book that you take some just some story and an anecdotal evidence and wrap that and prepare you pre prepare the reader for the scientific mm -hmm. evidence and. And you, there's a wonderful balance between just fun reading and then some science to back up the questions that come up because of the introduction. And each chapter stands on its own. So if you want to go to the middle of the book and learn about heat or learn about belief, which is a great, great chapter, and I have to look it up and see if it's really called belief, but <laughs> but but it's, 
Oh, good, good. Um, I believed it was. <laughs> and, and so it's just a good, good read, and you mix some of these you know, stories and what really happens out there with athletes, and then you bring in the studies. And, and at the end, and I was running with Bob the other day, a, a running buddy of mine that's been on the podcast, and I, I said, does, he, does Alex at the end tell us which way to go, which way to lean? And he doesn't. No. You know, he, he leaves it up to the reader to come to their own conclusions. He's given you the tools and all the evidence that's out there, and he's filtered that, but now it's up for you to decide. Well, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quick jump in there because I was re-listening to um, the chapter on hydration. Uh-huh. And, and Alex, you put it very well. I mean, you went through the whole history of where we've stood with hydration, and at the end of the chapter— Either you said it or it was inferred in, in what you were saying that there's, there's still a lot of research out there, and we may not know what the correct way to hydrate is. There's, it's, it's changed so much in, in the last—since we started years. this podcast yeah. seven years ago, it's changed, right? And, and I, I appreciate that, that you don't come out and say, this is the way that you need to do it because you're smarter than that. Well, it, it is interesting, and, and I appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, when I've talked to people about the book, probably the most common sort of, let's not call it criticism, but a, a sort of, I wish you had done differently is, okay, but how do we, what are the seven <laughs> steps the that I should take yeah. To, to, yeah, exactly, what's the formula? And it's like, and I understand that. It's like when I'm trying to learn something new, it's like, please, just, you know, yeah, 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 tell me the stories, blah, 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 background, but what what's the takeaway? Where is the, and, and one of the, you know, in, in my last book, what, one of the things I did was at the end of each chapter, I had this sort of tip sheet where it's like, here's the 10 takeaways from this chapter. Mm-hmm. And I had to think carefully about whether to do that in this chapter. And and I know absolutely, like I, I know absolutely it would have been helpful in some cases to help people synthesize what is a fairly dense, let's be honest, it, it, it's a, it can be heavy, heavy going at, at times. But I was just, I, 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 and then maybe this goes back to your previous question about like, you know, me as a physicist or whatever, but um, I, I didn't want to, th- th- there's a place for a practical book that tells you what, what to do, but I didn't want to write that book because once you do that, you you have to decide what it is you're telling people to do. And as soon as you make that decision, it's sort of like your, your, your ability to, to sh- stay on both sides of the issue kind of disappears. All of a sudden you start interpreting all the evidence to support mm. the position that you've taken and so I, I honestly like with hydration and stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm way less dogmatic than I was, a, even a few years ago. That I'm just realizing it's, it's really context dependent. And it's like I really think a lot of the sort of Gatorade style funded or Gatorade funded research from the, back in the day is seriously, seriously flawed. But I also think it's, it's absolutely, sort of oversimplistic to just say, oh, I'll just drink when you feel like it, and that that is, that that has potential problems for a lot of people, especially as you get to longer and longer races. And so I was just kind of like, I, I know people would appreciate it if I told them what to do, but I just can't do that. And uh, in, in, in this, it would fundamentally change this book if I turned it into an advice book. And so I, I, I know I'm leaving some questions hanging, but hopefully I'm at least getting people thinking about the, the evidence. Well, one thing that we've been preaching on this podcast since we started was make sure that you do your experiment of one. We're going to, we're going to throw out information that may or may not work for you. Um, if it does work for you, great. That doesn't mean it's the right way for everybody. So go out and, and experiment. And that, that's the, the beauty of this book is, is you use a, a very unbiased approach where you come in and say, Hey, this is what the research is. Go out and try it. Now, I will say there are some really cool, fun things that you can try. Um, I just was was uh, scanning my notes, and I came across um, the study, the the mammalian dive reflex, which was about the ducks and the seals that dive into the water, and because of the cold water, they can hold their breath longer. And you you bring out the point that there's some research of if you splash cold water on you, that you can calm yourself down and you can, you can, it has some very physical, I mean, that's, that's stuff that 
anybody can try on a run and and go out and may, maybe that's the the purpose of your run today is I'm going to I'm going to do a hot run today and I know that there's a creek down here or I know that I'm going to carry a bottle of cold water I'm going to splash that on my face and see what response I get. Yeah, that 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 area of research was totally like new and fascinating to me. You know, a lot of the stuff, you know, I've been writing for 10 years about, you know, hydration and stuff like that, but I hadn't really thought about oxygen and breath holding. And so discovering the mammalian dive reflex, which obviously we're not going to go into super deep depth here right now, but I, I highly recommend people read about that because it is absolutely fascinating. And you're right. We've got these responses. Like you dip your face in cold water, your heart rate starts slowing immediately because we have this deep evolutionary vestigial knowledge that, uh-oh, if face underwater, then oxygen scarce. So let's not waste it. Heart rate slows. Well, and the thing that I love about it is some of your research supports what we've been told by our mentors. I mean, we, we, we've been told by people that run Western states that when you get to this creek down there, it's the hot part of the day. Take five minutes and go dip yourself in the creek. It's cool water coming from the mountains. It's going to cool your body down. It's going to make you, you're going to make up that five minutes that you spend. And that's just, you know, hearsay. It's stuff that mentors have been telling you, but you have in here some science that kind of backs that up and says what, what, you know, Dana has been telling you for, for 20 years actually works scientifically. Yeah, I would, I would go so far as to say that there, there's nothing in my book that some wise person hasn't said five times already, you know, like, like, so coaches and athletes have figured out all this stuff over the years. And the, the challenge is that some of the stuff that coaches and athletes have figured out isn't true. So, so, so it's kind of like, you know, there's the cliche when you show up in med school, the Dean on the first days says, you know, 50% of the things that we're going to teach you in the next four years are, are wrong. The only problem is we don't know which 50 percent so <laughs> yeah. so 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 it, you know that this whole the whole enterprise in in some sense of, of sports science of exercise science or physiology i think in a lot of ways it's it's never discovering radical new things it's like oh we should be running on our hands instead of our legs if only we'd known it's <laughs> it's more just like figuring out which of the things that we've been doing are are effective and which are actually yeah you know you don't need to bother with that after all we were, we were wrong we thought it helped but it but it doesn't don don's been preaching that that we would run faster if we ran on our hands and our feet if we had four <laughs> like dogs if we had four appendages we would run faster but there's not not been any research on that yet well that's why we're using trekking poles Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's just an extension, so we don't have to bend as much. You know, one thing we can't measure, and we brought up the, the chapter earlier, was belief. We can't measure belief, but, but what a great chapter in there. I think it's one of the chapters I covered, I think. Uh, but t- can you tell the story, since we have the horse's mouth right here with us, ab- <laughs> about about the Ethiopian runners, I think it was, that they believed they were going to have the best day ever. Every morning they stood out there with and ran. They believed it was their day. Yeah, and this, you know, and, and I do want to just sort of start with a caveat that uh, anytime you start to say, "Here's how what Kenyan runners do," or "Here's what Ethiopian runners do," <laughs> yeah. it's a generalization. Yeah. Every everyone's different. There's you know, uh, so there's, a, there's some there's but, some Ethiopians that watch soap operas and eat Cheetos on the couch <laughs> no, too. No, no, <laughs> absolutely. You need some homebody but, Ethiopians. Uh, <laughs> Somebody watch the campfire. They need to keep the fire going. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, this, this, so I think one of the stories I told in that chapter was just going back to my experiences uh, doing some big road races back in the sort of at the tail end of my track career and, and finding this pattern over and over again that you'd go to a big race like the Cherry Blossom 10 miler and there'd be, let's say, two dozen elite athletes there on the, on the sort of elite list, most of them from Kenya and Ethiopia. And the, you know, the gun would go, and, and and there'd be a mix. There'd be a range of talent levels, right? Like some of them would be absolute, you know, A-chip talents. Some of them would be the incomer, just, you know, first couple of races in North America, you know, in some cases slower than me. <laughs> but the racing style was absolutely different. The, the gun would go off, and every single one of the, the Kenyan and Ethiopian runners would go up, go off with the leaders. However, you know, the leader might be a guy who's like Olympic medal content- caliber, Everyone would race with that, that guy, and gradually, one by one, they'd, they'd get sort of shot off the back of the lead pack. And meanwhile, I would be running, you know, two minutes behind, 
running my own pace. You know, this was, mm-hmm. you know, this was before the era of Garmin's or anything like that. But I was, you know, meticulously checking my miles splits and saying, all right, I'm running slow and steady wins the race. That's what Aesop's Fables told me. And that's the way I'm going to run it. I'm going to run exactly to the limits of my ability as proven in previous races. And I'd start passing some of these guys who've gone out with the leaders. And I think, oh, these silly guys, you know, why do they, why did they go out so fast? Don't they know that they can't run that fast? And I'd finish, you know, 10th or something like that out of 24 elite athletes or 12th. And I'd think, aren't I a smart guy, even pacing? Mm-hmm. And it's only sort of later that I started to think about, you know, as I, as I saw this happen over and over again and tried to figure it out, I kind of realized, well, first of all, there's different, you know, different motivations, right? Like if you're, you know, if coming from a, the poor countryside of East Africa, desperate to make some money, you don't care if you come eighth and, and set a personal best. You need to come top three or top five or wherever the money is to get some money. So you would rather come, you know, 20th, nine weeks in a row, and in one week, hit it out of the park and come third or second or first. And whereas I was just, you know, trying to set personal bests. But in the long run, I realized, actually, I, I was so risk averse. I was always just trying to maximize. I, I never hung it out there to dry and just sort of tried to see what I could do. And so some of these guys that I was beating one week, they would, you know, the next week they would be, they would turn, they would go out again with the leaders and they would they would win the race or come top three. And so in the end, they'd have a much more inconsistent uh, mix of results than I would. But you look back and it's like, yeah, they had some results that were way faster than mine. And, you know, when I've, I've since had a t- chance to talk to a lot of people who've, well, to, to talk to some of the Kenyan and Ethiopian athletes and to talk to people who've spent a lot of time training there. And there's a real sense there that uh, maybe to a, to a, a greater degree than the typical you know, kid coming out of a North American university program, they're, they, they, first of all, they, they set their sights high. They're like, I, my cousin won the Olympics. So why shouldn't I go there? You know, my, my aunt's friend's nephew is, is running a two Oh six marathon. So that's what I'm going to shoot for. And there's also a sense that if you have a bad day, it doesn't define you. It doesn't mean that, Oh, I guess I do suck. I guess I should, you know, run with the guy at the back. They're like, today wasn't my day. Next week will be the day. And so, you know, you start, you sort of start to ask, what is the goal? Is your goal to be really consistent or is your goal to kind of touch the sun once every, uh, you know, five or six races? And I think there's a mix. Like, I, I you know, my personality is such that I was never going to be a guy who just races with full abandon. But I look back and I was like, man, I wish I'd kind of given, taken a more aggressive shot and risked blowing up a few more times in, in, in my sort of serious racing days. I don't think we ever can find our limits if we're risk averse. And we've already defined our limits before we started. When you sat down making your pace chart, you've already decided what your best day could possibly be. You'll never break out of that um, because you've already set those personal limitations. So I, I think it's important to get out there and, and uh, let it happen. I was thinking that as, I was, as you were speaking about when you take a chance and you start running with a group that's faster than you. You know, you, you know there's always a group that are a little speedier that's up front and you're afraid to train with them, and we, we can all name the names. And then you finally get invited, and you go, oh, crap, you know, this, this is a risk. This is risky. I could really expose myself of not being a good runner, or I, I could fail in front of people I admire. But then you get out there, and you realize, I can do this. I'm keeping up with these guys, or it was harder than I thought, but I'm more driven to become better. And I, I think it's important to put yourself in vulnerable, vulnerable positions and if you want to reach your true potential and take a risk and get out there with those other runners. Yeah. And, and, and sort of confront the idea that if you do like, cause let, let's be clear. Sometimes if you, if you take a risk, sometimes the, the, your, your fears come true, right. And you, and yeah. you, you get you blown off the, the back door or whatever and, and understand that's okay. That happens to everyone sometimes. And yeah. you know, it's not like, you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's not death. It's just, uh, you know, you, you bit off more than you could chew or you had a bad day and, tomorrow's another day. And, 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 and I think that's really helpful in racing too. Cause I know for me, I, I really struggled a lot with, with kind of getting too nervous before big races. And so just sort of coming to grips with the idea that, you know what, it's, you, you, you gotta want it. You gotta really, uh, you, you, you need to have big goals and big ambitions, but you also need to be able to accept that sometimes you have a bad race and it's not the end of the world. And no one's like, ha ha, look at that jerk. He didn't run well. No, nobody cares about your, your bad races as much as you do. That's true. Um, I have a question for you when it comes to, to physical limitation. You know, there's limitation to matter. 
right? I mean, if I go outside and I flap my arms as fast as I can, <laughs> I'm not going to fly. You know, I'm just not going to. Gotta believe. I, I've seen him do it, Alex. <laughs> I've seen him go outside, and I've seen him do it. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, what about the the two hour marathon? Do you think we're at the limit, physical man's limitation? Are we getting close? What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's a good thing we're not having this conversation six months ago because I would have said no one's going to run 201 in a legit marathon anytime soon, and then Elliot Kipchoge did. So, uh, you know, I, I as a sort of inherent sort of skeptic pessimist, I've been uh, predicting against pretty much every marathon world record in the last 10 years, and there've been like seven of them. So, uh, I'm, I'm consistently wrong in that in that respect. Um, I think we're now close enough to two hours where, you know, the record's now 201.39 that I would, that, that this, that I think there's been a shift. There's been a shift in the general, uh, sense of belief of whether a sub two hours is possible. And I think that cause, cause before, I mean, there was a lot of skepticism that anyone would ever get there maybe five years ago. Now it's like 201.39, someone's going to get there at some point. And it, be, and it and there's a little bit of the self-fulfilling prophecy there in that we're so close, we know that it's possible that there's going to be more incentive to hold, you know, specific events geared to to the to a sub two, and and I think they'll probably be unlike the Nike's breaking two event event, which was not uh, record legal. I think we're going to probably eventually see some similar events to that that are held in record legal conditions. And that might be enough, you know, maybe maybe by optimizing a course, like having it on a Formula One track instead of through a city, maybe you get another 30 seconds, maybe, you know, whatever the, the, the time may, may be, and that's enough to, that'll be enough to elbow people underneath. It's, it's not a slam dunk by any stretch, but I think, I think we're close enough that if I, you know, if I had to lay down my cash, that it will happen, you know, sometime in the next decade or two or three. It, it may happen like it happened for you when there was... A, where they believed they were running a different time. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. how you ended up doing so well and just breaking through that. <laughs> that that marathoner may be have bad data or or miss you know crunch the numbers and and be running what he felt was a two oh one and he comes in at a one fifty nine forty. It's like he never figured. He thought he was on his old pace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After after the breaking two thing where Elliot Kipchoge ran two flat twenty five with and twenty five seconds. Uh, a few people asked me, like, why didn't they just change the clock by one second per mile? He never would have noticed. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, look, I was easy to fool because I'm just some chump. Elliot, I have a feeling that Elliot Kipchoge's like internal yeah. uh, speedometer is 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 way more finely calibrated than mine is. So I think I think he'd be a, he'd be a little bit tougher to tougher to trick, but who knows. Well, boy, uh, we, we can't convey enough to the listeners. If, if yeah. you've enjoyed this conversation, if, you, if you've been just thought, wow, that's fascinating, that's fascinating, I'd like to hear more about that. He's got a book full of them, and, and they're all written so well. And it's, and it's one of those books that you can reread and just continue to get more information. I mean, in the course of doing this podcast and the other three previous I think I've gone through the book maybe two or three times, um, not cover to cover, but just kind of jumping through. Um, and every time I read it, I just get new bits of gold uh, that, that, that allow me to do that experiment of one we were talking about earlier. You know, I'm going to go try that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to drink to thirst this time. No, you know what? This time I'm going to, I know what my sweat rate is. I'm going to try to... Uh, you know, go and, and replace a little bit more of that hydration this time, or I'm going to try this kind of nutrition this time. Um, so, so don't get angry with me, Scott, when I splash water in your face on the next run, okay? <laughs> oh, no, I'll thank you. I'll, I'll thank you. You're lowering my heart rate. I'm doing a, a study of one, and I'm using you as my <laughs> specimen. <laughs> You're doing an observational study. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, Alex, we think you are awesome for coming on to this podcast yeah. and writing this book. And you have a couple of other books. That, and if you'd allow us to read those, we'd love to revisit and, and chat again about uh, some of the content. Because I'm going I'm to tell you the names of those books because I have them right here. Um, keep talking. Okay. Well, Scott's looking <laughs> I, at the I, news. I, I can jump in and, uh, and give you the, the, the last book was called Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights? Uh, oh. Oh, I've already forgotten the subtitle. Something about Fit, training truth. Fitness myths. Training Truths and Other Surprising Discoveries from the Science of Exercise. Oh, okay. Let's order that. And, and, and here's yeah, that, one, that one's a bunch of Q&As, basically. 111 just sort of common questions, and then what does the evidence say? And, and the answer to all of the questions is it depends. 
<laughs> done done we're gonna get that book and here's the other one big ideas a hundred modern inventions that have transformed our world well that's just that's just good reading right if, there if, if i saw a youtube video that had that title i would click on it in a, in a heartbeat <laughs> that's a that's a lost gem very, very only seven people in the world have ever seen have ever read that book so. <laughs> well, well, well you'll get two more yeah, so you have nine <laughs> Hey, Alex, thanks so much for agreeing to come on. We'll get this out right away so we can we can share it with people who are excited for them to listen as well. And go out and endure. Moss. Alex, that was great. Fantastic. Thank, thank you. It was a thanks, Scott. brilliant really book. Appreciate it. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, for us, too. We'll get that out. Is this this week, Scott? Yeah. Okay. It'll be out on Friday. We'll get it out, and we'll send you a link. Yep. And we do appreciate uh, you giving us your time. We think you're... You know, very, very important to and I to and I will say community. we still have a fourth. Well, this is the fourth, but we have of the the three part series. We haven't covered all the chapters, and you 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 have Ma- five episodes. Ma- Magda Belay, um, <laughs> she awesome. I, I mean, Magda. I don't know if you know her. I mean, she's a brilliant, brilliant, fast runner, yeah. Olympic athlete, and and Andy Jones Wilkins. If you don't know who he is, he's a philosopher of philosophers for ultra <laughs> running and. We've had a really good time going through these chapters. Oh, that, that's really wonderful here. I actually haven't listened to them, so I'll have to check them out. <laughs> oh, no. that's, I, would love, I would love to hear your, uh, your perspectives. Go, go, go out for a run. You can, you can uh, download it and uh, listen to it on your morning run. It, 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 well, Scott, I'm, I'm a short, short run guy, so it'll, it'll, it, at 20 minutes a bite, it'll take me uh, you know, weeks and weeks. Just, <laughs> just put it on fast speed. We're not that enjoyable to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex. Hey, thank you so much. We'll get this out this week, and we'll uh, we'll you. kick over the link. Maybe you can share it with your people. Yeah, please do. Okay, Thanks thank so you. Much, Thanks. Bye bye.